Pinocchio, now streaming exclusively on Disney+. Plus. Sounds like my kind of place. Director Robert Zemeckis delivers a dream come true for the whole family. I want to be real. And Tom Hanks shines as Geppetto. It's going to be quite an adventure. Let nothing stop you. Jenny! From experiencing the next Disney classic. And to be real is up to you. It's in your heart. Disney's Pinocchio, only on Disney Plus, now streaming. 18 plus subscription required. T's and C's apply. We are both sitting with duvets over our heads. Yes, we are. <laughs> I internally often feel like a woman sitting inside a, a wardrobe with <laughs> cushions around myself feeling uh, yes. deeply inadequate and vulnerable and yet trying to present something very very polished and um artistic to the outside to the outside 100% the internal becomes the external uh this is a therapy session welcome Zoe uh let's talk about this welcome Bim my rates for you will be startlingly low if not free that's good I operate on a sliding scale myself so this is good <laughs> With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. Hello, I'm Zowie Ashton and I'm your brand new presenter for season four of the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. The podcast that speaks to women with lives as inspiring as any good fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. My guest today is Bim Adewumi. Bim is a writer and journalist and producer of the infamous storytelling podcast, This American Life, but was thrust into the spotlight by her own show and podcast, Thirst Aid Kit, amusing on female desire and lust, which she co-hosted with writer Nicole Perkins from 2017 to 2020, so her voice may well already be familiar to you. She is a former Guardian columnist and BuzzFeed editor. She has written for everyone from Vogue to the the New Statesman, The Independent. She is one of those people who manages to cover everything from popular culture to feminism and race with the most glorious humour and insight. She really is an expert on crafting great storytelling. She's also now a gifted and produced playwright. Her debut play, Horde, a comedy about Nigerian-British family in East London, premiered at the Arcola Theatre in 2019. She is currently based in New York, but I managed to catch up with her during a trip to England to discuss her five bookshelfy choices. This is Bim Adewumi. Bim, it's so wonderful to welcome you to Bookshelfie. We've known each other on and off for a, a while. A, and I a long to, while. <laughs> a long while. And I was tracing it back. And I have to tell you that you interviewing me in 2013 for The oh Guide God. magazine. Yes. Throwback. R.I.P. <laughs> the Guide. R.I.P. I, weekend. <laughs> <laughs> the deep nostalgia is disturbing. <laughs> we were working at The Guardian. When you interviewed me for The Guide... You were the first black journalist I'd ever sat down with. And oh, gosh. I had had a very long career up until that point. Otherwise, you know, who, yeah. who cares if it's the first one you've sat right, down right, with right. ever in right. your life? 
and they also happen to be black. But in a long line of journalists, you were the first Mm. black woman that I'd spoken to. And I have to tell you that speaking to you that day and reading the resulting article, it completely updated and changed the way that I spoke to the press and how I tapped into my authentic self in interviews full stop. So I want to thank you for that. That's a very big thing to say. So thank you for telling me that. I I remember being asked to do it and it was such a duh question. I was like, yes, 100% I will do it. And I just thought, great, like, I'm such a fan of her. And I, I want to see, I want to talk to her about her career. So when they asked, like, hey, do you want to interview Zara? I was like, yes, 100%. Stop asking silly questions. Let's go. What's the day? What's the time? And I was thrilled to talk to you. It really meant a lot to me as well, because I was so aware that it was going to be a cover interview. And I think that was one of my first covers as well. So it felt really great that you were going to be the subject and I was going to be the profiler or the interviewer. And then it was going to be a cover thing and it was going to be right there and I remember I still remember the cover you're wearing that dare t-shirt it's a black t-shirt and your hair is super short and I just I remember thinking that's a great cover (laughs) and you just look like such a rock star on the cover of it and you know my obviously my byline is nowhere on the front but I was like I did that that was me I did that and I felt really good about it (laughs) I love hearing you say that it was kind of a match an interesting match from your side as well and also something relatively Mm -hmm. new because I mean cultural tipping point Hello. Right. Where 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 are we now? You are a, a, a completely embedded writer for me in the in the Zeitgeist, in the cultural zeitgeist. You're not only a journalist anymore, your debut play Horde premiered at the Arcola Theatre in twenty nineteen. Yes. You're producing the brilliant podcast This American Life and the equally brilliant, may I say. <laughs> Hello. The first. We need Thank you. the first aid kit conversation at <laughs> Listen, the first time I ever th- heard the word first in, in regards to, to oh, I'm so glad. after people. I'm so glad. I Listen, we, we've obviously, we're on hiatus on first aid kit, uh, but I miss it every day. And almost every day, somebody online uh, loves it and loves us. And I always think to myself, oh, thank you for saying that, because it's such a weirdly large part of my life, even though I don't do it every week anymore. It really found its audience. And I'm so thrilled when people say stuff like you just said, like, oh, that was the first time I heard thirst. And I was like, oh, yeah, that was a heady time on the internet where we got to kind of explore stuff. So thank you for mentioning Thirst Aid Kit. God bless that ship and all who sailed in her. Before we move on to books, do you Mm. feel like you are experiencing a cultural tipping point from your point of view? I think so. I think in both good and bad ways. I think there's been a sort of uh, a widening of the door. It always felt like it was only slightly ajar, I think. Um, And it was incredibly... uh, it was incredibly rigid who got through and who got to do stuff. And I was always very aware that, you know, having a platform like The Guardian meant I would have more access. It wasn't just me, obviously. There were lots of young black writers who were kind of like, oh, yeah, we can do more. We can try more. And there were some editors who were like, yeah, we should definitely do more. There were people who weren't just paying lip service to the idea of a diversity of stars and writers and possibilities, you know, like the door kind of opens wider and wider. The important thing is to not let up and to kind of keep pushing. It's quite astonishingly quick how fast the doors can slam shut. So you have to keep the pressure up and you have to keep making the noise and you have to keep trying to get people into the rooms that they should be in. You know, this idea of the voiceless is not real. It's not true. Everyone has a voice. It's just a matter of who gets shut up and who gets kind of like given the loudspeaker. And, um, 
I will say that it feels as though more people have been given the loudspeaker, but on the same, in the same way, there are other people who are trying very actively to make sure the loudspeaker gets taken away. And in fact, that, you know, we go back to being silenced. So it's a lot. It's a lot of things happening all at the same time. Goodness. Well, I'm, I'm really, really glad that you had a hold of a, a loudspeaker at the time where our paths crossed. And you are a wonderful writer. And I'm so glad we have a journalist this season because you are filling that space for us, which I think is so <laughs> important and could create so many wonderful insights, especially when we're talking about narrative and story. So my first question is, what role have books played in your life? You're such a brilliant writer and such a brilliant speaker. Where has reading come into that? Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for saying that. One of the things that you never get tired of is someone's going to be very good at that. I'm like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much, as I simper. Um, <laughs> it's very nice, very kind of you to say thank you. I think that books are the fundamental backbone of my life, really. I, I started reading when I was very young. I mean, everyone always says that. Oh, I was so precocious. I wasn't. It wasn't like I was reading when I was two. But I, we, we didn't grow up in a house full of books. But we always had access to books. We, we were big library goers. I still, I'm a huge champion of libraries. Still, I think they widen the world for everybody, and very, very much so for people who don't have a lot of money uh, and don't have access to vast sort of like, you know, old libraries where they can kind of peruse the the classics or whatever. I, I'm very grateful. I, the old Stratford Library on Water Lane, E15, listen, that library is the reason I'm a writer. God bless, you know, it's different now. Now it's on the Broadway and it's all steel and glass. I was in the old smelly one, the one that had like a leak in the in the roof. <laughs> and I would spend... We love an honourable mention for an old library. This is what listen, this podcast is about. The building is now part of the University of East London and I'm like, cool, cool, cool young people but like when I was growing up this library was everything to me god bless Newham libraries they really did their job but I was in that library most weekends like you know in the, in the on the Saturdays go to market with my mom and my sister and then having to finish my chores I was in the library until it closed of a weekend like just sitting on the floor and reading everything and anything anything at all like I was able to pick up books that were way above my reading level and some that were way beneath and just able to sort of like really just swallow books. Mm -hmm. And it meant that I had like all these weird references and I knew stuff that I, maybe I shouldn't have known or didn't fully understand, but I had access to it. And it made such a difference for me to have the access and to be able to sit there unbothered. Even now, every time I sit down and pick up a book and just sit in my apartment and read my book, I'm like, oh, yeah. Shout out to the Stratford years where I just sat in the library and sat there until they were like, all right, it's time to go. Come on. So books are incredibly important. Another thing when we were, because we lived in Nigeria briefly as well. Well, not that briefly, for a number of years. And one of the things my parents did, my dad in particular, was to give us a separate allowance that was just book money. And we couldn't that. spend it on anything except books. And that was any kind of book. If it was written material, it was okay. So you could buy comics with it. You could buy audiobooks with it if you wanted. You could even buy magazines, although that was not so much a thing that my dad wanted us to buy. I basically bought a book a week, go down to the bookshop, select genius. something. And it's such a good idea because it meant that, Very you good. know, you have your regular pocket money and then you have book money. Wow. What's your dad's name? Uh, my, well, my dad's name is Adimola. We have to shout out Adimola right now because I think this is <laughs> this is definitely a system that needs to be adopted by more people. And my dad was he was very clear about it. He was just kind of like, well, you know, books can be your friends. 
you just have to kind of think of them that way. They'll enrich your life in, in another way, which on the one hand, kind of cliche and kind of like, all right, dad, we've got it, thanks. But on the other, a, a very, very specific truth, which is that I have found a lot of comfort and a feeling of kinship in books, which is not dissimilar to having a friend. So he was right. He was right. <laughs> I think this is a great moment to move on to your first choice, actually, because the first choice that you've made is such a formative book for so many people and has mm-hmm. actually been chosen earlier in the series a couple of times wow. and does seem to be a manual or a friend to so many. And that first choice is I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Dr. Maya Angelou. Yes. To summarise again for those who, who haven't read it, this is the first volume of seven books of autobiography by Dr. Maya Angelou where she invokes her childhood with her grandmother in the American South of the 1930s. She faces discrimination, violence and extreme poverty. But there is also hope, joy, achievement and celebration in this book. It is a coming-of-age story that illustrates just how much your strength of character and a love of reading and literature can help you overcome (laughs) even the most traumatic circumstances. It is considered one of the greatest books of the 20th century and probably one of the most quotable books of all time. Yes. It's really interesting that this book comes up again and again. I think it's for lots of different reasons. Why have you chosen it today, Bim? Well, in talking about all the time I spent at Stratford Library on Water Lane, one of the books that I read, I read it so closely. It felt like a very intimate book to me. I think I read it when I was 15 or 16. And I read it with my sister, who's a few years older than me. And we read all seven of um, Dr. Angelou's autobiographies. But this one is the one that we kind of were reading together. And I just remember our eyes being so big, like, oh, my God, this is such a this is such a book. Like it's yeah. it's, it's it was unlike anything we'd ever read up until that point. I, like, I don't remember us sitting and talking about a book so much um, in the way that we sat and talked about this book. Like I said, I was a son of, kind of like in my mid teens when I read it and what I loved about it immediately was just the ease of Dr. Angelou. Like in the Mm. book, like Marguerite is just this girl who you just, I, you liked her. There was just something about her so Mm. quickly that you just kind of glommed onto and you thought, Oh, I'm going to spend a lot of time with her and I'm going to love it. And Mm. that's basically how it felt. Like I know it's a coming of age book and I, I guess I didn't really think of myself as coming of age, even though I clearly was at that time. But there was something about the book that really kind of resonated deep in me. And it's only with hindsight that I think, Oh, that's because we're both girls growing up. But it felt like it was such a different part of of the world. I, I, I didn't know that much about the South or, or about America. I knew about, you know, Dr. King having a dream and I knew about Malcolm X, you know, by any means necessary, et cetera. But I didn't know any of that stuff, not in not in a deep way. And And over the course of the seven books, you get to kind of see a real an image, a portrait of America at a very specific time. But but in this first book, all I saw was a girl who was going through it <laughs> and was sort yeah. of like coming to the other side of what she was going through. And the thing that I really kind of glommed, that I didn't expect to kind of find in this was just an incredible ribbon of humour all the way through. Like I was laughing so much 
in this book and just kind of like chuckling, or literally like out loud, just like, oh my God, this is so funny. This is so funny. And then, you know, she slap you in the face with something harrowing. You'd be like, oh, it's not funny. It's not funny at all. And then two pages later, you were cracking up again. Like, oh my God, she's so funny. So it just, it warms you up from, from, the, from the inside out. And so by the time you're done with the book, you just think, oh God, I wish I, I, wish I was there. I wish I knew her. I wish we'd grown up together. I wish we'd come of age together. And what were you like as a child, Ben? I was a mix. Like I was, uh, <laughs> there are lots of uh, family stories that kind of detail a person who was kind of weirdly confident, sort of overconfident even. I remember that being on some of my school reports, which is Bim would be a better student if she wasn't so overconfident in her abilities. Because I just thought, it's fine. Like everyone said, Bim's very intelligent. She just doesn't apply herself. Bim's smart. If only she would stop talking. If only Bim would not think that it's enough to just turn up. Like there was a lot of that. So I was kind of like a sort of a dick really about my understanding of my own intelligence. I was like, it's fine, guys. I'm smart. It's fine. Like I really wore that like a cape. But it was like, yeah, but you're a poor student. And I was like, oh, that's different. Oh, my bad. So like there was some of that in there. But on the other hand, I was also kind of quiet and sort of like very sensitive, um, you know, my my family had a number of nicknames for how you know how sensitive I was, and like, oh, don't don't talk to Bim, she's going to burst into tears, or don't talk to her, she'll lash out. I was I was very sensitive for a number of years. God bless my parents; they really just let me work it out without kind of you know adding to my trauma. But I was uh, I was I was a bit of a confused little bag. And then when I came back to London, so we moved to Nigeria when I was younger, and then we came back when I was a teen. And it was kind of like an adjustment period. I remember year 11 in, in, in an East London school. Shout out to Brampton Manor. Um, I know it's a lot. And I remember I was bullied by a couple of girls. And I, I to this day, I, I deplore bullies. I, will, I, I, I cannot stand for bullies of any kind. It really rubs me the wrong way. I hate bullies so much. But I remember kind of thinking to myself, like, man, I can't wait to get out of this horrible place so that I can go be myself somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I like, you, you seem to share with, um, my sensibility, which is to shout out the libraries in a very positive way and shout out the schools in quite a negative way. <laughs> I think is quite interesting. Right. Oh, God. I really like some of my teachers so much, but some of those kids, my kids are rough. Listen, I don't know how anyone survives childhood. It's a hellscape. I don't know how. Jesus. My English teacher, who I will never forget, Miss Lloyd Child, she was a champion of mine. She was like, Bim, you've got to keep writing. She was, you know, I would write essays or whatever. And she'd be like, this is so good. You should write more. Like, you should do more. I loved Miss Loichel. If she's out there, man, I hope she's doing well. It's such a cliche. Oh, you like your English teacher? <laughs> you like the library? <laughs> and now you're a writer? And I was like, yes, I am a cliche. I liked all those things. I loved my English teacher. I loved the library. I loved reading. Like, it's such a, it's such a cliche of like the teen movie. Oh, she sat in the library during a lunch. I really did. I loved it. <laughs> Your second bookshelfy choice is Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Was this yes. a Miss Lloyd Child moment? No, no, this was independent reading. Um, you have to remember that in the UK, there were a couple of big cultural moments that affected uh, the bulk of the country, I think, around the same time. In the mid-90s, literally in 1995, there was a six-episode British TV drama that was adapted from Jane Austen's novel by Andrew Davies. 
And <laughs> at that time, we'll never it. I mean, how could we? I think I was 13 <laughs> or 14. And I, I saw Colin Firth and I said, yes, I'm going to read the source book on this. <laughs> Can it do take this back to source now? Has he, lived- has he ever made it onto the first aid kit as Darcy? I'm interested he has, to know. Uh, we, we, we've mentioned him. him. No, sadly, we haven't, we haven't brought Colin Firth on. Honestly, one of my dreams. Uh, I just thought, I remember watching it and thinking to myself, it's not like I fancy him, but I just want to, I want to wear him like a coat. Like I just, I just had such a reaction. <laughs> like so many young, so many young girls at the time. I was like, uh, yes, please. Yes. Whatever's going on there, I would like to be a part of it. I don't even understand what I want, but I just want to be there. I want to go to there, wherever there is, take me there. Like there was just something about, about, <laughs> and you know, Jennifer Ellie as well is so beautiful and oh, she's, she's such wonderful. a good actor and their chemistry was palpable. And I was like, oh, these two, I mean, I got it. Yeah. They're going to get together, but also, wow, the journey is worth it. I was in love. So I saw that and I thought, yeah, I'm really ready. And I think prior to that, I was really into kind of like the old British writers. I'd um, I'd watched Jane Eyre and read the book when I was younger. I'd read all of Dickens by the time I was like 12 or 13 because I was, wow. it was what was available to us. Wow. I remember we, 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 we had to do the mayor of Casterbridge at school. <laughs> Um, not, one, which, not one of the big ones even <laughs> bro honestly when I think about it I'm kind of like who was doing this why was this on the <laughs> syllabus because like why the fuck are we reading Thomas Hardy as children in Nigeria but they really had the mayor of Casterbridge on the reading list at school in Nigeria so anyway <laughs> <laughs> I read a bunch it. of English authors. Um, so we'd, I'd read, I'd, I'd burned through all the Brontes and I hadn't wow. read any Austen when I finally got to Pride and Prejudice. I'd done some Shakespeare, did not like Shakespeare. I was like, ah, enough of that because I didn't understand that plays had to be performed. Did you read Pride and Prejudice while you were still in Nigeria in this no, mammoth I, I, reading moment? <laughs> no, I read this in London and I was just like, oh my God, what is this? Like, this is so good. Again, the, the thread being, this is so funny. She is so funny. And the, right. that book is just hilarious. Like, she's so sly. And like, even the jokes I didn't get when I was a teenager, I, I, you know, I, I try now every year to reread at least one Austen every year. And this year it actually was Pride and Prejudice and uh, Persuasion that I went back to. And I'm not a huge oh, fan of Persuasion, but Darcy I have so much time for. I, I love a stern, I think he, he's one of the origins of my stern man sort of like uh, fancy. Like every time, if there's a dude who's sort of like you know having to kind of work through his stern quietude i'm like yeah put it put it in the put it in the bag i'll take that i'll take two of those like we, we yeah must, i love a stern we bag. must explore this more i do i should <laughs> i feel i must summarize uh the book that we are discussing at the moment because it's right. not good to assume that everyone's read the classics and that's not what we're about on this podcast at all but it's so interesting that this book has come up before june sapong um, um picked it this this season it's obviously come up countless times during this entire run of this podcast but of course we are talking about jane austen's 1813 romantic and satirical novel of manners following the dynamic elizabeth bennett one of five daughters tasked with marrying well by their father in order to secure their family's inheritance it revolves around the importance of marrying for love rather than money or social prestige despite the communal pressure to make a wealthy match Jane Austen called this book her own darling child. (laughs) It's so interesting to me that 
Jane Austen, for people who haven't read her or know about her, probably um, presents as this woman who might be similar to the women in her novel. But not many people know she never married. (laughs) She Mm. actually turned down engagement after engagement and was deeply in debt by these money problems that her father had left behind when he passed away. And she still did not make a match, even though it would have been this hugely helpful economic move. I love hearing why this book resonates with with women especially because there's always a different aspect. We Mm -hmm. did drop off at the Darcy point and it creating in you some kind of desire for a Darcy-esque match for the rest of your actual life. Yes, yes, he's he's one of my formative crushes, helpfully embodied by Colin Firth. But I think I fell in love with him even in the book because I just thought, oh God, what an utterly disagreeable person. I wonder what I can do to make him more agreeable, um, which is a whole problem, I think, for many a woman in therapy. But there was just something about him that I found really compelling. And I think it really was the fact that he sparked so well with Elizabeth and also that she gave him such short shrift she was just kind of like you're not going to be a dick to me like do what you Mm. must mr darcy but like please don't bring that shit here and i respected that i thought there was something about him that she understood oh this could be you know with hindsight and like having read it multiple times since the first time i read it i see different shades of, of what elizabeth was maybe responding to there is obviously an attraction and because it's not sort of met with his own sort of simpering attraction back she's like well fuck this guy and i'm like oh same on behalf of every sort of like stush woman out there I'm like yes 100% why is he not falling at your feet I'm sorry but like that's strike one um and I love I love seeing like shades of that in there as well I'm kind of like yeah my my expectation is adoration I cannot believe that this rich man just because he's rich thinks he's nah you gotta fancy me what the hell so I thought that was just incredible to read and just kind of be like oh yeah I see why Elizabeth's a little bit mad because this guy's a dick and she expects you know people not to be (laughs) so like yeah I see that and I thought there was something just so interesting in all the side characters like I used to be so contemptuous of Mrs Bennet who is a very silly woman but also a silly woman of of her time who also fully understood that it is not easy to be an unmarried woman during this time not in this place um Mm. so yeah I used to be very kind of like anti Mrs Bennet and now I just see a woman who understood so clearly that without good marriages the whole family was buggered and so she Mm. was perhaps a bit too much but she was only doing what she thought was right to secure certain things and I, I love seeing myself sort of evolve and change with that and I'm also you know by turns more irritated with Mr Bennett's a sort of ineffectual self-pleased man who you know one of the lines I think about all the time is you know when he says oh I'll forgive myself soon enough and I'm like yeah sure I'm sure you will you bastard I'm sure you will like how remarkable that men are able to forgive themselves so quickly meanwhile Mrs. Bennett is carrying the burden of trying to make sure her daughters make good matches but you're out here sitting there kind of going oh it's it's a sorry business but I'll forgive myself I'm like yeah that's literally the way of patriarchy you bastard I have no time for Mr. Bennett. I I, I mean, be clear with how you feel, Bim. I I love that. (laughs) I love that our relationships, maybe a little bit um, like with films or, you know, certainly um, heavily, you know, genre films like rom-coms or, you know, Disney films, that our relationship to the characters needn't be frozen in the time of us reading it, that actually they can change with life experience and therapy, as you you mentioned. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Very important two things there yes <laughs> so I'm still in love with Tramp from Lady in the Tramp I now know as an adult woman 
Not a great match. Not a great match for me. Absolutely not. Can't be relied upon. And that now. <laughs> I wonder, Bim. It sounds like you you you're drawn to the strong female heroines. I'm wondering if there is a literary heroine that you most identify with, and is it Elizabeth Bennet? No, actually, I, I think I identify with other people more. There is a character in another book that I'll mention during this podcast that I really identify with a lot more in a way that feels like when I first read it, I kept having to put the book down and like gather myself because I was like, oh, God, I see myself so clearly in her. Um, but Elizabeth, I think, is up there. I think she's top five because, I mean, it's the same way when everyone's like, oh, I'm definitely Carrie. And it's like, I don't think you're Carrie, actually. <laughs> so I think everyone's urge when they're watching Pride or, or reading Pride and Prejudice is to kind of be like, oh, I'm definitely Elizabeth. And I'm like, mm, I hate to break it to you. You're very much a Lydia and everyone hates you. Um, <laughs> or worse, I you're Kitty. <laughs> or you're Mary, actually. You know, annoying little Mary. That's who you are. But I see how you need to believe that you're Elizabeth and I'm going to let you have that because you need that. I can see a game being patented here very, very quickly. Which <laughs> Austin woman do I present as and which one am I actually? Right. A card right. game in the, in the card game in the works. I wonder if you've led us seamlessly onto your third book choice by, by talking about the female protagonist that you maybe identify most with and that's The Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing by Melissa Bank. <sighs> have I led us into the right place? You, you really have. Incredible, incredible <laughs> segue there just uh, so smooth it's a smooth segue it's worth um summarizing this for anyone who hasn't read it this is a very funny collection of connected stories about jane a woman maneuvering her way through love sex and relationships after following the advice from a manual called how to meet and marry mr right it is like a modern day pride and prejudice jane (laughs) learns that love doesn't actually follow expected patterns or paths It's a critically acclaimed book with a woman's internal world at its centre that went on to become a bestseller in the US and the UK when it was published in 1999. 1999, that golden year. Tell us, Bim, about why this has made it onto your list and your identification with Jane as a lead role. So I did not read this book in 1999. In 1999, I was still a teenage girl and um, I don't think I was aware of this book until a couple of years later. And I've written, actually, I wrote about this book about four or five years ago, maybe even longer. But I basically was talking and waxing lyrical about how it shaped my 20s. Um, And I still think that. I think it's one of the books of my life. I think it's one of the books that really gave me a sort of insight into what my life into what my life could be. It didn't have to be, but it could be. And um, Melissa Bank, I think, is perhaps... It's weird. She's she's not written many books. And I think a lot of people have forgotten her, which is like a very sad state of affairs for me. You know, this book is, like I said, one of my favorites of all time. To me, when I read her, I remember thinking, oh, she's like John Cheever, but she's she's young and modern and a woman and funny. Mm. But she's just as skilled. Like, I, I, I believe very strongly that she's just she's so good. I think that's the thing. Like the way Melissa wrote Jane, it's so interesting because the book, like you've mentioned, is a a collection of linked stories. So in some of the stories, Jane is sort of like very, very present. And in Mm. some of them, she's so peripheral. She's just on the side of a thing. And I think it's Mm. so interesting to have a book where the main character is often missing from it. So it's, it's like I said, it's, it's a bunch of stories that she wrote over the course of, I think, a decade, maybe even longer. 
to write this book and she was doing it while she was working in copywriting. She was working a job as a copywriter and she she apparently declined the chance to advance in her career. Like her boss would offer her a promotion. She'd be like, no, thanks. Just so that she could maintain the pace that she was in with with her book writing. Like she Mm -hmm. just knew that this book uh, required a sort of slow and steady hand. So like, yeah, it took her more than 10 years to write it. And each story is so distinct. And yet together they are, it's not a seamless sort of um, feeling, but they really kind of stop in and check in on Jane or people around Jane or people connected to Jane at different points in her life. And the result is just phenomenal. You really get a a, a glimpse into Jane's interior life at different stages mm-hmm. of her life and some of the terrible mistakes that she makes along the way and some of the heartbreaks that she endears, um, some of the grief, some of the just the way to be, how to how to sort of be a person in, in a body in the world. I find it just incredibly moving. It works so well as a thing that you dip in and out of, which is part of its part of its uh, charm, part, part of its power, is that wherever mm. you open, the story will take you somewhere. And it's like you, you need only go to the story that means the most to you in that moment and you'll find something. And you can always kind of, you know, reach back or look forward. But there's so many ways to be inside this one book. And in in turn, it tells you that you can be any number of ways. You don't have to be one thing forever. You can be multiple things at the same time. You can be multiple things over time. The world is your oyster. You're able to be a person who is different to everybody that she is interacting with. And that's okay. Like this book really pulled something from me. It, It let me see the possibility of my life. Oh. That's so powerful. I do want to say to our listeners that you have written a brilliant article about this book on BuzzFeed. You've already been so illuminating about it in what you've said, but you you say in that article that this is the reading material you press into the hands of, of female friends, whether solicited or not. Yes. But that there is still this terrible ghettoizing of women's writing in the literary world. And I, I wonder if you could expand on that I don't know I grew up in the era of chiclet and it was written about it was spoken about in a very sort of derisory way oh it's chiclet you know it's popular it's it's you know the girlies love it it's a beach read and Mm. it was always kind of presented as sort of like less than someone like you know the girls try they really try but you know they're not out here doing meaty like manly fiction uh, I used to work in a bookstore many years ago. Uh, shout out to Borders, R.I.P. <laughs> right. right, truly, what a, what a time. And I remember, you know, there'd be the three for two table, which was often kind of pastel colored and books by women, largely for women. And they sold huge numbers. And the thicker books, the, the literary fiction was always on the shelves, you know, mm. not to be browsed in quite the same easy way as laid out on a table. And the difference sometimes you would see would be the men walking up to their big, important books. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but that is basically shopaholic with horses. What are you chatting about? Like, that is not like you think you're reading some hardcore like, no, that's just period shopaholic. That's what that is. And instead of a flighty young woman who likes shopping, it's a man at war who loves his horse. Like, this is neither here nor there. Let's not pretend that this is like some deep difference. But there is like this sort of weird, like marginalizing of uh, women's voices and it's been going on obviously long before I was alive but sometimes you really see it kind of like laid bare and working in the bookshop really gave me a sort of insight into that and 
I was just so irritated by it because I just kept thinking there are so many good books that have sort of been swept under the carpet because people are kind of thinking about them as like uh, very inconsequential fluff nonsense. And there is nothing wrong, by the way, with inconsequential fluff nonsense. But there was definitely this feeling that if it's for women by women, it can't be very good. And this book often got put into like these sections that were basically a sort of like looking down your nose at, at, at them. I'm kind of still reeling from your insight into the ghettoization of women's literature in bookshops I hadn't really thought about the ways that female written literature was sold to me or presented to me as a young person I'm now having all of these flashbacks of the chick lit (laughs) that was uh, included at the front of magazines with like a nail polish and a nail file for your holiday reading purposes which actually in in the episode that we recorded with Candice Carty-Williams she had found uh, Anger Songs and Perfect Snogging, one oh. of her most formative books, in, on the front of a magazine. So it kind of it had a duality there. Sometimes it could introduce you to something so life-changing. Yes. But I'm now thinking all of those times where I would go to a bookshop with a boy or a, a man throughout my life and the diverging of paths yes. is actually a thing. Yeah. I'd never thought about it like that before. God, that needs to be addressed, doesn't it? Oh, I think it's a lot better than what it was. Because, yeah, it was it was kind of like aggressively gendered. It's better now where it's kind of like, oh, let's just be gender neutral here. Let's, if you like the book, pick it up. But yeah, when I was definitely, when I was working as a, in bookstores and also when I was younger, I think for sure, it really was kind of like incredibly apparent that, you know, like you said, a diverging of paths, boys go here, girls go there, go find your book and then come back and we'll meet at the till. And it carries on because yes, Angus Thongs and Forefront of Snugging is perhaps one of the great British classics of the last 30 years. Mm. And Full it frontal deserved snogging. to be... I, I, gave, I gave it the, the film title, the cop-out film title. It is Full Frontal <laughs> Snogging when we're talking it's about fantastic. the book. Listen, I, I, was a, I was a children's bookseller at Borders, so I was very... I, I pressed Louise Renison into so many young people's hands. Like, read this book, it's great. Um, all, all of them. And, they, and again, hilarious. Just incredibly so funny, hilarious. incredibly age-appropriate. Just, just the best things. And so, yes, I'm so delighted that it, it was in front of a magazine but there was something to be said for what the idea of the books that were free with magazines and what they meant yeah. and what they were supposed to be it was kind of like disposable nonsense yeah. once you ghettoize it you're just kind of like oh yeah you, you become one of those women who's like oh, i don't read those books which is mm. just bullshit you should read those books they're good <laughs> they're very good books i wonder if that energy that drive to correct that ghettoizing is something that inspired the first aid kit Do you think there's something about redressing a balance that inspired your brilliant, brilliant team up with Nicole? I think so. I think for sure. One of the things that we were very clear on was trying to sort of like fix what had sort of been pushed to the side. The idea of women's desire uh, front and centre, as opposed to just like a little thing that you tend to on the weekends. Like, no, it can be a thing that you think about all the time. It can be a thing Mm -hmm. that you are questioning and examining and thinking about why this person, how this person, what are the things that have led me to this place? Why do I feel this way? Why can't I feel this way about this other person? What's the thing that's compelling me here? What is the thing that is turning me off this? That I think is a worthwhile pursuit. And I think for a long time, a lot of people People have understood women and their desires to be sort of like uh, secondary. 
they're not the thing that that kind of animate a life and it's like no what if i told you it could animate a life what if i told you you could find such rich depths in exploring the reasons for your uh, desire and and how you landed there that's really what that's like it was about was just trying to kind of unpick it a little bit for you to kind of think wait why why this person why now and the answer mm. is oh because hollywood put this in place in 1932 and you're like oh i see like that was that was a big part of it was trying to sort of fix the thing that had been sort of maligned or sidelined um for so long Star Wars Andor, streaming exclusively on Disney+. Plus. Cassian Andor, Empire's choking us. I need all the heroes I can get. From the creators of Rogue One. There is an organized rebel effort. Get a hunt started. Witness the beginning. This is what revolution looks like. Of rebellion. I'm tired of losing. Wouldn't you rather give it all to something real? Star Wars Andor, original series streaming September 21st, exclusively on Disney+. Plus. 18+, plus. subscription required. T's and C's apply. Free stuff tastes better. Fact. It's not a fact. It tastes like I want something. It's like my taste buds know I've not been charged and they're celebrating. You think your taste buds have counted your change? Try it. It tastes like coffee. It tastes like free coffee. And all I had to do was collect four little beans. Costa Club members who buy four handcrafted drinks at Costa Coffee get the fifth free when they use a reusable cup. Because at Costa Coffee, loyalty is a big deal. Subject to availability only at selected stores. Excludes delivery terms and conditions at costa.co.uk. The podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Enjoying the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast? Share the literary love and be a part of the future of the Women's Prize Trust by supporting our charitable programmes for writers and readers. Donations of all sizes help us to continue empowering women, regardless of their age, race, nationality or background, to raise their voice and own their story. Search for Support the Women's Prize to find out more. Your fourth bookshelfy choice is uh, an absolute powerhouse of a book, one that cannot be ignored and has not been ignored. It's it's a huge bestseller, and that is Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. You've chosen a book about a killer cough. I can't believe you're doing this to me, Bim. This is Emily's fourth novel published in 2014, which won the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Science Fiction Writing. It feels so incredibly relevant. It's set in the Great Lakes region before and after a huge swine flu pandemic called Georgia flu has swept through the world, killing most of its population. It's recently been made into a TV series, a miniseries for HBO. Um, This is dystopian fiction that lands right where we are (laughs) in this (laughs) current climate and current moment. You will probably find on any search engine right now that all of the the information about the series comes up before the book, which is always the way with successful adaptations. Mm. But be under no illusions, this is a really, really serious tome from Emily. Tell us about why this book has made it onto your list. (laughs) 
not just because <laughs> of the pandemic. I'm hoping, no, even though I no. we haven't talked about the pandemic, and I feel like you're the person to get into it with. Them, okay, having described it as your not crying but wailing year. Yes, let's get into Station Eleven. Yeah, so Station Eleven for me, um, I read it uh, long before the pandemic. The, the pandemic wasn't even a twinkle in our eyes. We did not know anything of what was to come. The horrors, oh, the horrors. <laughs> my friend told me about it, and my instinct was to kind of like wrinkle my nose and be like, mm, I don't think I want to read that. My friend is a huge purveyor of deep, dark, depressing books. She's an incredibly talented writer herself, and she kind of leans toward the books that really kind of take you on a sort of deep, dark, emotional journey. And I was like, eh, Karen, you know what? Just hold on to that, yeah? And then I could not put it down. I was completely taken with it. It's a nearly perfect thing. I think there is so little wrong with it. By saying it's not perfect, like it just it's just shy of perfection. I think that's my way of trying to leave room because I actually think it is perfect. <laughs> it just hit me. There was something about it. Like I, I talk a lot about The Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing as the book that shaped my 20s. I think Station Eleven is the book that shaped my 30s. Wow and sort of gave a very specific... I wouldn't have moved to America if it wasn't for Station Eleven. I don't think I would have taken chances if it wasn't for Station Eleven. It suddenly just hit me. Because, of course, you live in New York now. We have lost you to the second yeah. greatest city in the world. How, <laughs> what, was, what was that journey? What was that illumination for you? I mean, it's very hard to articulate because it doesn't seem like this book of all things would be the thing, but it just hit me like... Not because I thought, oh, there's a pandemic coming, but I just thought if there was one to come, if money lost its power, if we had nothing, if, if we had to start from scratch, are you living the life that you want to be like caught in forever? Like, is this the thing that you want? Is this the, is this the thing that in the years after when you're surviving, after the Georgia flu has taken out most of humanity and you're trying to rebuild the world, will this be the story of your life up to that like pivotal point? And then I was like, no, <laughs> wow. just go. So I just, I, I decided, okay, well then we're going to chase a thing. We're going to go to a place. We're going to do a thing. I think it was a, a way for me to stop to stop saying no to the things that I really wanted and to kind of experiment more with yes. And I've, I've always been a person who kind of is like, yeah, I'll, I'll figure it out. And I just say yes and do the thing. But this really was the thing that propelled me into a new sort of realm of, of, of being that way of just kind of like, don't say no to the thing first. Like if it doesn't work for you, by all means, of course, turn it down. But but if it works in a way that is tangible, that you can you can touch, and you can think about and you can sort of frame as a thing that would be useful to you then do it and and this book I think was the thing that just picked me up and said hey look at this and then go out and live your life and so I did it, it hit me at a very specific time in my 30s and I just thought to myself what are you waiting for what are you waiting for if a pandemic came today this cannot be the thing that you were doing at the time so you have to get up and you have to go and that that book pushed me into into living in a very different way after there's my life before station 11 and my life after it it wasn't like I was seeking permission but perhaps I was because this book gave it to me gosh that is so powerful Bim because what I'm hearing is an invaluable lesson which is rebuilding one's life before it gets smashed right <laughs> essentially living living in the moment is the hardest thing to do for any human mm. but we so often wait for the crash 
before we reevaluate, right? So what right. you're talking about is living in, in a genuine place of growth, saying, hold on, the pandemic hasn't happened, but if it were to, <laughs> how do I want to say I'm living my life? Mm-hmm. And the book is so much about rebuilding, isn't it? So much dystopian fiction leans into the idea of the dissolution of society. But right. this really is about how do we rebuild? Yeah. And how do we remain human while we're doing it? I think that's the thing that that was really compelling because the thing about Station Eleven is it's somehow incredibly unflinching. It's not a, it's not a cold retelling of facts. It's incredibly mm. human. It's filled with all these stories of very, very simple people, just people who were outliving their lives and then this horror like dystopian fiction is about the thing that you worried about well it's happened and then the thing that emily st john mandel does is that she then makes it so that you're like okay so what do you do after the thing happens how do you maintain the best parts of humanity while also making new ways to be human in a world that is so fundamentally changed she resists the urge to tie things up in a neat bow so Sometimes it feels like, oh, there's two characters, surely they must meet. And Emily's just kind of like, why should they? No. Mm. So often life does not resolve itself neatly and I'm not going to do that here. And it's an inc- it's a boss move because I'm always kind of like, damn, I'm so cheap. I'd be like, yeah, put it in. Let them meet. Let there be a massive you know, interaction. And Emily's like, no need, calm down. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a way to tell a story. So like, you know, it's a very interesting thing to catch uh, the skill of a writer in the middle of enjoying the story and kind of be like, oh, wait, no, she's very good. Oh, she's very good at this. Like, that's the thing that catches me. How is, after two years of this pandemic, your post-pandemic, post-pandemic life, Are you <laughs> when the actual <laughs> pandemic struck, were you in yeah. the position that you wanted to be after reading this book? I still can't believe that you managed to do a, a sort of <laughs> pandemic rehearsal. That seems very unfair. <laughs> I know, I know. It was pure serendipity, you know, in quotes, lol, serendipity. But um, I think I was mentally in a place that felt good to me. I can't stress enough how privileged I am in so many ways to have a job that I like so much, to live in an apartment by myself that I like very much, to be in New York, which is a very kind of different beast to living in the UK over the last few years. Like, I I honestly really, really like my life in New York. Like, it's a it's a life-built um, you know, by my own hands in, in very specific ways. And I'm very glad that these are the bricks that I chose. Wow. Having said that, the pandemic was incredibly hard and still is, lest we, lest we forget it's ongoing. Shout out to Omicron. <laughs> and so, like, it feels very much like we're stuck in this moment for a bit longer. And it makes me all the more grateful that the life that I did build was one, I think, that was able to withstand the worst of it. Wow. I think this is a huge lesson for anyone listening. Uh, it's certainly a huge lesson for me. Read read this book and yes. live your life now. Prepare your life as though you're preparing for a pandemic. I think those are really, really, <laughs> really lines to live by, Bim. Wow. Your fifth and final book, choice this week is Circe by Madeline Miller. This was shortlisted for the Women's Prize in 2019, so feels mm-hmm. nice and relevant for us on this on this podcast. This is a multi-award winning book, which 
is currently being adapted also as a drama for HBO. HBO just hoovers up all that good literature. Respect to HBO. It's set in the Greek heroic age and is an adaptation of various Greek myths, most notably the Odyssey, but told from the perspective of the witch Circe. She is the daughter of Helios, god of the sun and mightiest of the titans. When it's discovered she has the power of witchcraft, she's banished to an island, but it's here that she meets Odysseus, for whom she risks everything. This seems to have elements of all of your book choices in it, Pim. <laughs> um, the power to choose, the hot guy, um, <laughs> living life on your on your own terms, but also the deep and um, profound craft uh, that Madeline Miller has uh, for mm-hmm. writing. What drew you to this book, having already summarised your personality through your book choices? <laughs> Um, exactly. Listen, this is another one that my friend Karen kind of put directly in my hands. And she said, you've got to read this book. And having learned my lesson session 11, I said, say less. So I went online and I ordered it immediately. Um, and I was blown away. The thing with Madeline Miller is it takes her 10 years uh, at a pop to finish a book. And when you read the resulting work, you think to yourself, take another 10, love, go on. Like, you're oh. so good at this. Like, mm. I, if, if I have to wait 10 years for each one of these, then yes, that is my choice. And I choose it. And speaking of choice, the thing about Cersei is she begins life as a person who has none. She has no choice. Mm. It's that thing about the difference between, you know, your best options and true choice. And so often what is handed to Cersei is here are your options, pick one. And it's not true Mm -hmm. choice. It doesn't feel like the world is open to her. Uh, And that's saying a lot because she is herself a demigoddess. Like she is the child of a god and it means nothing. So often I think a lot of us have a sort of like a sort of a a short circuit when we realize that, oh, I don't have that many options. I've got to make the best of the few options I have. And that is a very different beast to the world is your oyster, go forth and pick one, like, you know, choose a life. And I think many of us only learn that at the worst possible time. And for Cersei, she learns it so early in life and she's so aware of the the limits of her options. And I think it Mm. kind of builds a sort of flint inside of her that means that when the worst thing happens, she is able to sort of climb out of what I think could be a pit of despair for so many other people. And instead, Mm. it's the beginning uh, of the making of her. It's wonderful to think about these huge mythical women becoming extremely accessible. Mm. Do you think this book made the Greek myths more appealing in some way? I don't know if I would say appealing. I think it made them uh, more textured. Because the thing about mm. Circe is, as I read the book, I, I suddenly realised that I had she had been on the periphery of so many of the stories that I'd read as a child. You know, there's that old joke that you, there are different phases for different for girls. So, like, you have your horse phase, you have your Egyptology phase, you have your Greek myth phase. My, I definitely had my <laughs> Greek myth stage where I was kind of like, uh, all my life is Greek myths. I don't Me want to hear anything too. that isn't a Greek myth, <laughs> right? You just become obsessed. <laughs> and you start, you start making random observations. Oh, that's just like when Zeus spoke. And you're like, shut up, no one cares. But like, oh my goodness, <laughs> I, why weren't we at school together? This was so... <laughs> Me, like Orpheus in the underworld, basically. Oh, mate. My life, because I was like, okay, uh, the underworld is a real thing. But that for right? me, before seeing Get Out, was like my son can play. So I was like, right. And I'm being transported to the river of sticks, and I will never. Right. Ever- 
really, again as a teenager just having that moment <laughs> to just really it, have your epic, epic emotional life told through the Greek right? myth that's so interesting Right. And I think, again, shout out to the libraries. They have these massive, incredible books that really just kind of say, hey, come come through, child with too many hours in your life. Come here and read this about some, you know, Greek stories that are literally thousands of years. And I'm like, uh, OK, I'll, I'll be right there. So, like, I knew all these stories. And it was only when I was reading Circe that I realized that she was so intimately entwined in these stories. She's somebody's cousin. Oh, like mm. the idea of the Minotaur is her nephew. It didn't occur to me. Ariadne is her niece. A Daedalus, who is the father of Icarus, is one of her lovers. Mm. And you think to yourself, wait a goddamn minute. Circe was in all of these. Why didn't I know who Circe was when I was reading about these Greek myths? And the answer is, even in those stories, we still marginalize women. And yeah. the power of uh, Madeline Miller is to kind of bring forth a character who, it turns out, was at the scene of so many of these iconic Greek myth stories. You didn't know because nobody thought to give Circe the privilege of a loudspeaker at that point. And then Madeleine Miller rocks up and is like, oh, don't worry, I'll, I'll write you a story. And the, there were all these, you know, the book is littered with, with these quiet observations that really have much larger resonance. She says nymphs were known as brides. Mm. And she goes, and she's herself a nymph. And she's like, but that is not what we were. Um, we were not brides. We were sort of an endless feast that were laid out oh. upon a table. Um, I'm very bad at getting away, which is such an allusion to sexual assault, which is obviously all over Greek myth um, and kind of, yeah. you know, in a very casual way, which again, as a grown up, I'm kind of like, wait, we were just reading about casual rape like that? What the fuck? Like, but it's like, yeah, well, Zeus, well, he's a sort of a randy god. And you're like, I don't think that's randy. I think that's an assault. I think that is a serial rapist. What the fuck, Zeus? Like, there's so many stories where you're just kind of like, huh? And wait, kids read this? Okay. Um, but when she says that line about, you know, they call us brides, but that's not what we are. We're an endless feast laid out. And we're very bad at getting away. The stories have written us that so we're bad at getting away. The, the, the realities were bad at getting away. That really, that messed me up. Just this idea of it. Um, and mm. what I really love about Circe is that she has these moments of realization over and over and over again. This feeling of um, waiting for tragedy, waiting for, waiting for the bad thing to happen. But then there's also this part of her which is kind of like, but then I can also guard against it. I too can pick up tools. I too can figure out a way to repel it or at least to kind of uh, lessen the blow. And I always found that just an incredibly um, uplifting thing to read, this idea that you're not trying to avoid a life in which there is pain and, and sadness and grief, but you're trying to figure out how to overcome it or at least to come through it. Oh, goodness. It's it's just having me go back and think about all of the Greek goddesses on the peripheries of the action. Right. I'm just determined to reframe in my in my mind to help me with my own life today, you know, right. and not to undercut a very serious conversation. But I I feel like the card game of which <laughs> which Austin <laughs> woman are you, which Greek goddess are you, could be fast in the making because. <laughs> These are the women that help you shape your identity as you read at this formative time. Right. And and so many of them, I think, are presented in such black and white terms. And mm. it, it really is one of those uh, things where Madeleine Miller throws some light onto these very 
kind of, you know, either or one or the other kind of stories. And you think to yourself, oh, yeah, this person was deeply complex. Like, yes, a made up mythical creature. Sure, sure, sure. But, you know, the stories that we make up tell a story about who we are and what we like and what we value. And it's it's the complexity and, and this idea of why the gods do the things that they do you know, to mortals and how they do it. And 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 that's so interesting. And Cersei being not a mortal, but not an all-powerful god, puts her in a very unique position and makes her all the more worthy of, of study. So you can, and so you can really think about her as a person who didn't have all the power. She's the reason we say sorcery. Like, that's her. Like, th- these yes. things that we didn't think about. These things that we just didn't think about, that's Madeline Miller's lane, is for you to suddenly flesh out the bare bones that you sort of learned at school in a very, like we learn of these people as heroes or villains. And what she does is she shades them in. Um, And with Cersei in particular, she brings her from, from the sidelines directly into the spotlight and you get to spend time with a character that you didn't realize was present all along. Um, and had so much to say if only, you know, you took the time to listen. Well, Venus is not just a razor, women. (laughs) Listen and select your books wisely. Bim, I could talk to you all Christmas. (laughs) We we do have to wrap up with the almost impossible question, Mm. which is if you had to choose one book from this list as your favourite to take with you into the underground bunker ready for that second, (laughs) third wave, (laughs) what would it be and why? Oh, that's that's a horrible, horrible question and I resent it. Um, <laughs> I think it might be Circe. It was one of the first books I reread at the very beginning of the pandemic. It felt appropriate to sort of um, accompany quiet contemplation and solitude, which is what we were all doing that very first time in 2020. And I found it to be a very, very, very solid companion. And so I think... By virtue of it being the one that, you know, I have the most experience with taking into a metaphorical bunker, it's going to have to be Cersei. I think it's the perfect choice. And (laughs) please take it down there and keep the phone line open so I can (laughs) dial into you for even more insight. Uh, And and of course, this is a book that has been on the the Women's Prize shortlist and we encourage you to to purchase it and uh, find out what we're talking about for yourself. Bim, thank you so much for joining me cross continents uh, in your (laughs) wonderfully pandemic rehearsed life and the place that we find you today. I wish you a very, very happy holiday and thank you again for your time and insight. Thank you so much, though. It was such a pleasure. I'm Zowie Ashton and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Please rate and review this podcast. It's the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today. Thank you so much for listening. Hope to see you next time. You've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Andor, streaming exclusively on Disney+. Plus. Cassian Andor, Empire is choking us. I need all the heroes I can get. From the creators of Rogue One. 
There is an organized rebel effort. Get a hunt started. Witness the beginning. This is what revolution looks like. Of rebellion. I'm tired of losing. Wouldn't you rather give it all to something real? Star Wars Andor. Original series streaming September 21st. Exclusively on Disney+. 18 plus. Subscription required. T's and C's apply.